0: You're listening to a sermon preached at Redeeming Life Church. Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 34. It's Christmas time. How can you not turn to Matthew at Christmas time as we're continuing in this series we're in? So if you would like to turn there and read along, I'd like to read it for us. Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 34. It's on page 881 if you're using uh, one of those church Bibles. Let's go ahead and take a look at that. God's word says this. When the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another just as the sheep, uh, excuse me, just as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Let's pray. Lord, as we as we look at this text from Matthew, speak to us in ways that change us, that would submit us well to your word. Help me to preach this word well. Help us to receive it well. And at Christmas time, Lord, let us help us to anchor into this. That you are indeed who you say you are, the King of glory, the King of kings, King Jesus. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen. So, what in the world kind of Christmas text is Matthew 25, 31 through 34? It's probably not the text you're accustomed to hearing at Christmas. I, I don't recall if I've ever preached this at Christmas time. I don't know if you've ever heard this at Christmas time, but at this point I think we should. I think this makes for a fantastic Christmas text. This king that we just read about. This is the king that the wise men were looking for when they, when they asked Herod, who is he has been who has been born king of the Jews? We hear that at Christmas time, Matthew 2:2. 2, 2. Right out there in a lobby, there's this big old heavy king decoration, this crown right this christmas decoration many of our christmas songs mention jesus as king don't they we sang some this morning many of our decorations demonstrate the king who has come so what would be the point of thinking about jesus right at christmas time as a king without really understanding what it means that he is king It's hard to find another text in Scripture. I mean, you'd be hard-pressed to find a text better than this one that shows not only Jesus as the king, sovereign, sitting on the throne, ruling, but also performing his kingly duties. This isn't just the look at the king. This is him doing something. That's what we see in Matthew 25, 31 through 34. The king and the king serving. And so if we're going to understand the king, I want us to, to dig into this. But but there's something here that I need to put out ahead of all of this. The main point okay, and then the chief purpose of this whole section, Matthew 25, 31 through 46, is not to show you Jesus as king and then impress upon us uh, this right view of his kingship. That's not the point of this Text. Although it does do that, that's not the main point. The main point of this passage is to call all people to surrender to the king, to be numbered among those saved who will inherit the kingdom. It's a call to salvation. It's a call to righteousness that we might enter into eternal life. And inversely, if I were to keep reading, we will see that it's a warning to those who would reject Jesus and be damned and cast out into eternal punishment. If I had read all the way to verse 46, we would see that. This is the point. Surrender yourself to the king. But I want to preach a sub-point from this text. That's what I want to do today, and and that's okay. We're not bound to always preach the main point, but if you know me, if you've been in here for my preaching, I hardly ever move over the main point to bring about a, a sub-point. But that's what I want to do this morning. So that being said, I think it's important we understand we cannot correctly grasp the sub-point, this under-submitted point, if we don't actually get the main overarching point. We've got to grasp the main point, and we're not going to get any of it. We can't, we can't go into Jesus' kingship if we don't get the bigger point. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take a minute, and I'm going to preach the, the main point so that we can then come underneath that and see the subpoint. Okay, Here's the main point of Matthew 25, 31 through 46. Surrender to Jesus. Right, this is an alarming call that we would surrender ourselves to King Jesus because uh, Jesus is shown here, and he's telling those he's preaching to, that there will be a moment coming in the future when there will be a sorting of all people. In the world. And they'll be sorted into two categories. They'll be put to the right, to the left. They'll be sorted into groups like sheep or like goats, that says. The temptation here, if you read that and you see that, is to take the characteristics of sheep and goats and then try to apply them to people, which doesn't really ever work. It gets really wonky and weird. And when you read commentaries, when they try to do that, you realize the commentator completely missed what's supposed to be happening. That is not the point. I would encourage you not to go there and think, oh, people who are saved are like sheep in this way and people who aren't are like goats in that way. The point here was to show that what's happening is something like what a shepherd does. All right, the statement is serving as a simile. And we need to see that. So if you look again at verse 32, it says all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them uh, one from another just as or in this way or in like manner a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. The point is not the sheep and the point is not the goats in that simile. The point is the separating That a shepherd does. The king also, in the same way, like a shepherd will separate them one from another. That's the point, the separation. Don't miss that. Then the passage goes on to show that that the hearts of all those, all of them, will give evidence in what category they should go. This is a judgment on the, the condition of the people's hearts. And so in one group, people that, that gave Jesus something to eat when he was hungry, the people who gave him something to drink when he was thirsty, the people who, who invited him in when he was a stranger, the ones who clothed him when he was naked, the ones who cared for him when he was sick and visited him in, when he was in prison, there's this group, that's the people who were over on this side. That's verses 35 through 36. They didn't even realize that they were helping Jesus while they were helping their brothers and sisters in need, the people around them who were in need. And so what you have is these actions that demonstrated the condition of their transformed hearts. That was the outward evidence, these acts that they did, of this inward transformation, this inward service to Jesus. The other group, on the other hand, well, they did not do any of these things serving their brothers and sisters, and therefore serving Jesus. Their evidence, by holding back from helping anyone, was a demonstration of their their cold, black, cold, hard hearts. And so Jesus was judging their outward evidence in such a way. Yes, he knows the heart, but that's where the text goes to show what he saw. All right, this is what Charles Dickens was trying to show us in the example of Ebenezer Scrooge in The Christmas Carol. This is one of my favorite Christmas stories. I just finished my annual listening of the unabridged version. I love it. I do it every single year. And it struck me this time while I was shoveling snow and listening. Dickens, who, by the way, was a Christian, and I have a book he wrote um, about his faith a little bit. He was a Christian. He was trying to give us a picture of what an overnight transformation of a saved man might look like. A man who will now keep Christmas in his heart all the year long. You hear that language? Or if you're not a lover of the Christmas carol and you prefer It's a Wonderful Life, it's the same picture we see in George Bailey, right? Who suddenly sees his life, what it could be and what it is. It's this picture of this this joyful salvation. Or... If you're not that old, it's what we see in The Grinch Who Stole Christmas, right? When The Grinch's heart grew three times bigger. So that it says in the story and in the cartoon, so the true meaning of Christmas could come through. Do you hear that subtle language? This is the thing we love so much about good Christmas stories, is it not? This is the thing that moves us. And actually, it's the same thing that moves us when we see the gospel, We love this. This is why these movies stir our heart because they're they're kind of ringing the echoes of the gospel. It's the good news of the gospel that says that we're not all condemned to be among the group that the king sins into eternal punishment. It's the gospel that tells us that, that Jesus Christ makes it possible for us to have this heart transformation. It makes it possible for us to leave the citizenship among the enemies of God and become... The king of glory's loyal, faithful subjects and citizens. It's amazing. It's amazing. But it's not, and this is important, it's not three ghosts that make that possible. It's not Clarence the angel that makes that possible. It's not some weird who song of characters singing weird who stuff that changes our hearts. It's not who hash either. Neither is it feeding the homeless, or caring for the sick, or visiting people in, in prison. Now, those things are good things, certainly. And we should see those things in a Christian, but it is not those things that makes a Christian. Only Jesus can transform our hearts. Those things can't. Only Jesus can do it. Only Jesus can save us. You can do all you want to serve others, but without Jesus, you still will not be numbered in the right category, because Jesus traded his righteousness, right standing for our sin. And so in that judgment moment, it's the righteousness that Jesus sees, right standing. He sees his righteousness on people who are serving in in that way. And when he does that, when he trades this, this heart of stone, and at Christmas time I think it might be helpful to imagine this heart that's black like coal, right? This big coal nuggety, he, he trades that for a heart that beats the blood of life, his life blood. There's a there's a great exchange that's happening here, a great fantastic exchange that is not like your typical white elephant game. This thing has eternal consequences so that we can be numbered among those who are being saved and will inherit the kingdom prepared for us from the foundation of the world. That's awesome. That's the gospel. So the main point of Matthew twenty five thirty one through 46, the whole thing that I didn't read, should drive us to consider the evidence of our own hearts. What is the condition of our heart? Where will we find ourselves at the conclusion of this great sorting? Where will we be? On which side? If you're concerned that when it all gets sorted out, you'll be on the wrong side, please just come talk to us. Please talk to some people here. We, we want to show you what Jesus the King, in His Word, the Bible has to say about how you can do something that will change the outcome of where you will be standing in that great sorting. And I promise you it's far better than getting visited by three ghouly spirits of the past, present, and the future. It's so much better. Okay. So that's the main point of the passage, the overarching big, big point, right? That's the main point. But I want to drill in a little bit underneath that point, which serves that point. It's submissive to that point. I want to look at Jesus' kingship. I want to peel a layer back. Right, I want to look at the next layer of the text. Okay? It still falls under the main point, but now the subpoint is going a little deeper and it, and it proclaims this, that Jesus is the promised perfect forever king of all kings and our only true king. Okay? So so let me show you now. Okay, first, I'm going to put the professor hat on just a little bit. We're going to work through some biblical theology. To help us at christmas so for those of you who don't like the teaching professor had i'm sorry i'll take it off in a little bit and uh but let's go through this okay first i want you to notice when you look at the text here verse 31 verse 31 it says when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him then he will sit on his glorious what is it throne he's going to sit on his throne that's kingdom language. Verse 34 says, Then the king, if there was any doubt, will say, and then it goes on to what he's going to say, and at the very end of what he says, he says, and they will inherit the kingdom. Okay, We're talking about a king here. This is kingdom language, but Jesus is not just a king. Not just some old king. He's the ultimate king. Because back in verse 32, it says he has the authority, if you miss this, to bring all the nations before him in judgment. What king on the, on the earth has that kind of authority? This king can draw forward all the nations. Now, depending on what kind of uh, study Bible you might have or what you might see in your Bible, um, just a little side note, you might have a footnote in your Bible that says that the word for nations here could be translated as Gentiles. Those words are somewhat synonymous, but not perfectly. Context dictates... And that note or even that translation has led some people to interpret this verse to mean that what Jesus is doing is he's separating out all of the Jews and he's separating out all of the Gentiles and he's putting the Jews on his right and he's putting the Gentiles on his left and any Gentile who decides they really want to be Jewish and they want to run over and be over there on his right. That's what some people have taken this to mean and that's a huge stretch If you happen to run across that, I want to tell you why I don't think that is the case at all. Number one, Jesus was entirely speaking to Jewish people at this point, including the religious leaders. Chiefly, the religious leaders in this whole discourse, he's making a huge point. So he's speaking to Jewish people as he's telling them this story. And then in that whole thing that he's trying to say, what he's doing is calling people out who think they belong to God, but don't because the outward actions of a transformed heart are not present in their lives. So he's calling out people who were Jewish, right? And then number three, Jesus goes on to explain who's in and who's out, and nowhere in there does he say Jewish, Gentile. He says the condition of a transformed heart, dead heart, living heart. So if you happen to run across notes like that, just be aware. I don't don't think that's the case at all. I think Jesus is looking at anyone's heart regardless of their national background, their sex, their age. Their, he's not looking to that. We all stand before God and are judged by the condition of our heart. In verse 31, we get a picture uh, of the Son uh, in glory. It's the Son of Man, and he's, he's in glory with all the angels. Did you see that? He's, he's got the entourage of the heavenly hosts, This is a heavenly king judging all of the earthly kings and all of us who think we're kings. Jesus is no ordinary king. There's definitely something different about this king. And in verse 34, we see that the king has the authority to grant the inheritance of the kingdom. Which kingdom? The one that was prepared before the world was created. He has that to give. No other king has that. No other king has that. Jesus is the ultimate king. But here's the thing, we've just barely began to scratch the surface of the magnitude of this king. All right. One of the points, the chief points that the book of Matthew is trying to make is to show us that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise that was made to David of a better king. It's to show us that Jesus is the promised, perfect, better than David, king, who will come from the line of David and establish the kingdom forever. The first verse in the book of Matthew. If you want to flip over there, you can look at it. I believe it's the title of the book, actually, because there is no verb. There's some debate here, but I think it's actually telling us what the book should be titled. Matthew 1 says, an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Now it goes on and also says the son of Abraham, but I want to focus on the son of David. What does that mean? What is Matthew doing, this, this witness of Jesus? What's he doing? He's pointing us back, the reader, he's pointing us back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12-13, through which says, this is, This is God making a promise to David. God says, when your time comes and you rest with your fathers, that's a way of saying you died, I will raise up after you uh, your descendant, singular, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That was a promise made to David. Matthew here is telling us that Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. This is the descendant. This is the one. Okay, but Jesus is not just pointing to a more perfect King David. He's not saying, Okay, this is the one that comes after David, and he's more perfect than David. Matthew's actually telling us that Jesus is more perfect than King Adam like, well, I didn't see Adam. It doesn't say King Adam back there in Genesis. I know, but let me show you. Let me show you how I get there. In Luke's gospel, there's a genealogy just like this one, right? And it goes all the way back through the kingly line of David, through the promise of Abraham, all the way back saying that Jesus is the son of Adam. And then it goes one more step and says he's the son of God. But that son of Adam shows the line we're talking about. All the way back, in the very beginning, when God created everything, he was the king. The one who created it all, the one who laid the foundations, would anybody deny at that point that the God was the king? He was the king. And then he created Adam and Eve, and he put them in the garden. And he gave them a job to do. He gave them a commission. In essence, you could say the king knighted him. Listen to what it says in Genesis 1.28. God said to them, Be fruitful. Okay. Multiply and fill the earth, absolutely, and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and every creature that crawls on the earth. Rule. That's king language. A king is a ruler, and to rule is to be the ruler. Adam is serving as a king, given the authority to do so on the earth from God the creator of everything. So now the creator of heavens and earth has said, okay, Adam, you got the job, rule. That's what kings do. Go for it. So he's to serve God by being a king, but we know Adam just blew it. He just dropped the ball on his kingly duties. He let an enemy into the kingdom to thwart and overtake the kingdom, the serpent who lied and and caused problems. Why would you... Let your enemies sneak in and ambush God's kingdom. He failed, but God made a promise that there would be this specific conqueror who would crush the serpent and redeem the kingdom of God. That's Genesis 3.15. And then that's what we see play out in the Bible and in the promises. Jesus is the victor. He's the king. He's the promised one that we're looking for. So we have a promise to David. There's promises to Abraham. And then there's this promise right here that Jesus would be the better king than Adam was, better king than David was. So now fast forward. Let's get back up here. Fast forward back to Matthew, when Jesus left his heavenly kingdom and entered humanity. And he took on flesh and dwelt among us. He's just this little baby, born in Bethlehem. Seems so innocent. Right? And there's a group of strangers that come looking for him. They come into the town of Jerusalem, we're asking around like, hey, we're, we're trying to find this baby that was born. But how do they ask? Matthew 2.2. 2. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Even the strangers knew he was the king. They knew. They were looking for a king. Of course, they go to King Herod, and they're like, hey, where's this other, where's this other king? Right? which freaks King Herod out because he's uh, very afraid that he's going to lose his kingly kingdom, right? He's, his authority, and so he has every kid, two years old or under, in the town of Bethlehem killed. That's a serious freak out because he was afraid of the possible line of a king to come and, and usurp Herod's line. right? That, that should show us, as we read Matthew, that Matthew wants us to see this kingship and this line now fast forward again, Matthew 21. Here's what we typically call Palm Sunday. Jesus is entering Jerusalem. And Matthew shows us that he is to be seen as the son of David, the king. In Verses 4 and 5 of that chapter, Matthew tells us, This took place so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. Here's the quote. Tell daughter Zion, see... Your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Your king is coming to you. And the people are crying out as Jesus is coming in. They're calling out to him in verse 9, Son of David, pointing back to the promised king. They were were declaring their king coming into the city. On trial before Pilate, Jesus asks, excuse me, Pilate asks Jesus if he's the king of the Jews. That's the question at hand that Pilate is concerned about in Matthew 27, 11. Hanging above the head of Jesus on the cross is a sign that reads, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. It's in verse 37. Mocking Jesus, the religious leaders are shouting out, He saved others, but He cannot save Himself. He is the King of Israel. Matthew 27, 42. And they're completely missing the irony of what they're saying and doing. They're just missing it. Because it's true. And after Jesus raises from the dead and spends some time with his disciples, he commissions them. And it says, All authority. Who has authority? The king. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Matthew 28:19. Jesus is the king of all heaven and all earth, and all authority has been given to him. He is the king of all nations. All the land is his, and he is the king, and he is sending his ambassadors to herald the king. To go and make the king known in all of the world. And Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.20 calls those people ambassadors. Who has ambassadors? Kings! Clearly, Matthew's intention is to show us that Jesus is our promised, perfect, forever King of kings and our only true King. And finally, Jesus is not just the the King of all the other living kings. He's the King of all the kings that ever existed. And it's not just that. He's the fulfillment of this perfect King forever. There will never be another one that comes after him. There will never be one who usurps him when we get to the book of Revelation. At the end, we see thrones and throne rooms and and crowns and and sub-kings, this whole kingly structure, and the king is heralded with pomp and trumpets. It's this huge picture, and there's this thousand-year earthly reign of King Jesus before the new heavens and the new earth. Clearly in that language, it's a picture of Christ as ultimately and finally consummating his kingdom. He's a king. We can't miss it. You cannot read the book of Revelation and miss King Jesus. You shouldn't be able to read Matthew and miss King Jesus. And now the text that I read that I said, this is a Christmas text, Matthew 25, 31 through 34. We get this glimpse of this serious king that will be judging his subjects, either loyal or rebellious. The Bible makes it incredibly clear that Jesus is the promised king. Incredibly clear that he's the perfect king. Incredibly clear that he rules over heaven and earth forever. Now, let me take the, the professor hat off and let me just put on sort of the hey, we're all in this thing together at Christmas time hat. That's a long title for a hat. Let me ask a question Why would I think that we should think about Jesus in this way as the king at Christmas time? Like, so what? Okay, I see it. You show me. The Bible shows that Jesus is the king. But it's Christmas, and I have a nativity scene with a little baby Jesus in it. Why is this the text I chose? Well, this might be the only time of year, maybe the only time of year, when the majority of our nation, or at least many in our nation, will give any kind of of awareness to Jesus. They'll, They'll acknowledge him a little tiny bit, which, of course, is easy when you only see Jesus as a helpless little baby in the manger, one that you don't need to submit to, It's entirely different when you see Jesus as the ruling, judging, victorious, perfect, and forever king. Right? When when we see Jesus only as a a Christmas decoration, eh, that's nice. Not much reason to celebrate, though, if he's only a Christmas decoration, is there? Then it just becomes earthly and secular. And then Jesus becomes the, the little decoration that helps us celebrate whatever it is we've made Christmas into. Right? We, we think it's our birthday, not Jesus' birthday. We think it's our celebration, not the king's celebration. But in light of who Jesus is as our king, <clears throat> we now have a whole different thing to deal with, don't we? Now we have to ask ourselves, are we celebrating this good and gracious king, this wonderful saving king, the savior of the world? Am I submitting to this one as I'm celebrating and worshiping him at Christmas time and all the year long? Or am I this rebellious subject in whom the king will judge? Just because you don't want him to be the king doesn't make him not your king. There's no not my king in this scenario. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, your king, your Lord, whether you surrender to him or not. And this text at Christmas should cause us to think about what it means that this king would enter flesh, would enter into our humanity, and that's who we are worshiping. Will we be his faithful subjects on the right or his rebellious on the left? Christmas is a time for us to celebrate that we would have been on the left, that we deserve to be on the left, that we were rebellious and we still have a rebellious heart, but the king himself would die for his subjects to change those dead hearts of stone to hearts of life. What a gift! At Christmas, we celebrate at Christmas when we recognize what we've been given, nothing that we can earn, completely unmerited. that causes us to say, I'm yours, King Jesus. I'm yours. This is why I think this text, Matthew 25, 31 through 34, is such a wonderful text at Christmas. Maybe I'll challenge some of you on Christmas morning or Christmas Eve, sit around your your elect, fake electric fire like we have, and put on some, some hot cocoa. and Read this text and celebrate this king. And don't see Jesus as that little helpless babe because even when he was in the manger, he was king and lord, ruling, reigning, sustaining all things in life. This is the Jesus in which we celebrate because we know, because we've been transformed Because we see and love this Jesus that he is our promised, perfect, forever king that deserves all the glory, all our submission, all of our life, everything that we are. And when you see it that way, I'm convinced it changes the entire way that you will see our Christmas celebration. He's King Jesus, he's our king. Let's pray. King Jesus, I am so grateful. What other king of the world would die for the most lowly of peasant? But you did. What other king of the world could have our best in mind? Always. What other king of the world has dominion over all the land? All the world. What other king is more victorious than you? There is none, Lord. So we profess our praises to you. And Lord, we give our, our submission to you. Lord, sometimes we, we let our rebellious hearts creep in. But Lord, when that happens, you're gracious and forgiving. Turn us back to you. Lord, for those who have not surrendered to you now as, as their cherished king, Lord, change hearts. Transform their hearts from death to life from stone to beating flesh, that they would cherish you as their king rather than fight against you. It's my prayer, Lord, that all of us would be fantastic, loyal subjects because of what you've done. And we thank you for that. Help us to remember this at Christmas time. And Lord, help us to remember this throughout the whole year. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. We'd love to have you as our guest. For more information, visit RedeemingLifeUtah.org.